And so this week we are focusing on Philippians chapter 2, which is the crux, the, the heart, the center point of this letter from which Paul will build outward his understanding of how the gospel affects everything uh, around. So today we're going to be talking about conflict, and we're going to be talking about the church. Now, I I don't know about you, I don't know how closely you guys are following the news, uh, but I want to go ahead and summarize, or at least do my best to summarize, the world that we're living in today. Um, Everyone is super angry about everything all the time, and that's about it. Uh, There's always something new to be upset about, to be angry about. Uh, We are walking around angry and just waiting for someone to tell us why. Uh, And I hate to be uh, the bearer of bad news here. I'm sure this will come as quite a shock to you, but forming unity does not seem to be particularly high on the government or the media's list. Uh, that, That doesn't seem to be something that they're very concerned about. People have these very impassioned beliefs, and I think that's a good thing, But it seems like the divide between these beliefs just continues to grow. And it almost seems like if we ever talk about two groups, two entities, there's always a versus in between them. We have uh, Republicans versus Democrats. We have church versus state. We have Christians versus atheists. Uh, We have America versus the world. Uh, it, It seems like everything needs to be a competition today with winners and losers And in the church, we would hope that it would be different. We would think that we should all be at least on some semblance of the same page in some kind of agreement. But I just don't think we're that much different from the outside world, at least not as much as we think we are. We're just a little better at hiding it. And if you haven't thought about it, well, here you go. I'm going to lay it out for you. In this church, we have people that are Republicans and we have people that are Democrats. And probably there are members of both of those groups who don't see how you could, but that's where we are. In this church, there are people who think that same-sex attracted people believe that they they believe in in same-sex marriage, and and they believe they should have a place in the church if they want that. In this church, there are people who believe that women have no business in leadership roles, and there are people who believe that their dream church is composed of female elders or preachers. Our church, see in the world, I, I think we truly are just better at hiding it. We know how we should act, so we kind of dance around these controversial topics so that we can pretend that they don't exist. We can pretend that we are all in agreement on these big issues. And I see these conflicting views manifesting in one of two ways. Either we are just ridiculously polite to each other so that we can pretend that they don't exist, Or we decide that an issue is worth going to war over. And so we engage in heated debate and arguments and we get angry. Sides form and the church begins to split. Each side feels like they are right and they have have to prove the other side wrong. They have to convince them of their error. There's really no middle ground for us in church. Because we are called to unity, we are called to love our brothers and sisters. But we also want to be in the right so high when we're dealing with God, with faith, and with Christianity. And here is what Paul is addressing in our text today. This is exactly what Paul sees as the issue in Philippians chapter 2. And I love the way that he talks about these issues, because as we read, we're going to see how Paul answers the questions that he sees arising from his teaching. 
It seems like every time he says something, he anticipates the objection that is going to follow, and he addresses it in the next immediate section. So we're going to begin today in Philippians verse 1. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion, and be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I'm going to stop there for just a second. With those ifs at the beginning, those if statements, it out. Uh, at least that's what it seems like to us in the English language. But that's ne- really not the case. He's, he's, not try- he's trying to get us all on the same page. He's trying to remind us all of the beliefs that we have signed on to as Christians. He's trying to say, if we can agree on this as Christians, there's an understood and there is, after all of these statements. If there's any encouragement, and there is. If there's any comfort in love, and there is. He's reminding us of what we have signed on to. And with that, when he does remind the the people in the church with these things that they claim to believe, he says, I have a request for you based out of what you say you believe. Be of the same mind. Paul is saying that we, because we agree on the ideas of Christianity, we should be able to have this unity that he talks about. Being of the same mind, having the same love, keeping in mind the same purpose. Sounds easy enough, right? No! You can't just say something like that, Paul. That's the issue. We tried that and we failed. We are arguing in this church. We are very clearly not of the same mind. You can't just say something like that. These problems don't just go away. As I said, Paul's writing is going to raise some questions, and my immediate question to these two verses is how? How do we do that? How are we as a church supposed to be of the same mind? And Paul, of course, delivers. Let's keep reading in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. I shouldn't have asked. I like this better when I thought that Paul was going to tell me to keep on in my righteous anger, that I'm justified, and that I should keep fighting the good fight. His instructions are so simple, but so ridiculously subversive and countercultural. Consider others better than yourselves, and look to the interests of others as often, if not more often, than your own interests. Imagine for a second if we were to take that extremely literally. In every meeting, in every argument, in every Facebook post, in every conversation that you find yourself in, you made a conscious effort to decide to treat that other person as more important than yourself. Across the table from you, or even across miles bridged only by the internet, you made a decision to see not an opponent, but the face of Jesus. And you say, today I'm going to decide that the most important person is the one right in front of me. These two verses present a challenge to us. They force us to look at every interaction require of me. And I see this manifesting in three different directions. And that would be laterally, outward, upward, and downward. And the first one, this outward direction, uh, I think we're pretty good at. Uh, And by this, I mean those people that we consider equals. Our friends, our family, 
our spouse, our boyfriend, our girlfriend, uh, even just that stranger in line at the bank, uh, those people who think and look and act like we do, it's very easy to say, in this moment, I can treat this person as more important than myself. Jesus actually addressed this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that? Everyone does that. Even those pagans over there who we have nothing in common with, they do that. There's something to that. There's a challenge to that. Jesus is asking for more. And maybe he's talking about these two other directions. Now let's think about what this would look like in the upward direction. The people in positions of power over us. I'm talking about those mean bosses, uh, those mean teachers if you're still in school, uh, your parents, your in-laws, anyone who is in some kind of position of authority over you, even the President of the United States. We are called to treat these people as better than ourselves, to submit something we hate doing, to hand over power to someone when we interact with these people who have power over us, our first question must be, what does love require of me? How can I try to see them as a child of God? How can I see them not as a caricature, not as an enemy, but as a human being who Christ died for as well as myself? And the last one would be what it looks like downward. These people who maybe we have power over them. Employees, our children, our students. Maybe those people who have the less flashy jobs in life that tend to get overlooked. The janitors, the nurses, the, the garbage collectors. And even those people who aren't used to being seen at all. The extremely impoverished, the homeless, the physically and mentally disabled who are struggling to find a way in a world that is not built for them. Who just want to be seen and to be loved. Sometimes half the battle is just seeing them at all, forcing yourself to look where you're not used to looking. And once you see them hurting, ignored, desperate, our first question has to be, what does love require of me? It's Paul's understanding that because of Jesus, every single believer in the church is more important than himself. And that's not something that I can say I'm good at. Even in a church family filled with people who I love, who love me, where we share a lot in common, I, I don't think I can honestly say I regard everyone as more important as me. It's so important to notice here that Paul doesn't say there cannot be disagreements. And he certainly doesn't say that we can't talk about these things. He knows that differences will arise for Christians just like any other human beings. Paul's instruction is that we have to talk about these things, but when we do, that these conversations must be rooted in love, in treating other people as more important than ourselves. And this is a full-time exercise in this word that we like to talk about in church and never practice, this word humility. Humility isn't flashy, it's not impressive at all. It's hard to compete with others in humility. You can't gain anything from it. There's no security in it for you or your family. In fact, humility has absolutely no place among the values that we are taught in America. These values of individuality, self-sufficiency, control, wealth, 
prestige, notoriety. Humility can't really compete with any of those. We don't have too many public figures in America that we can look at and say they are practicing humility well and I can emulate them. At least not the real kind of humility, not the kind that Paul is talking about here. And so my question is look like who can I copy? Who can I imitate? Because I don't have the first clue of where to start. And of course, Paul comes through once again. We're going to keep reading in verse 5 as he talks about Christ's example. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now there are two elements that I want us to hone in on to really want us to take away from Jesus's example and those things are power and action. Number one I want to talk about power. In verse six Paul says that Jesus was God. Jesus is God. Jesus had all of the power of the all-powerful, and yet he laid that down. He did not consider it something to be exploited or used to his own advantage. Whatever power he did have, he used to the benefit of others, and the rest he emptied himself. He brought himself lower on purpose. He laid down all of this power because he knew what would benefit the world through this. He adopted a human body. He walked with us. He suffered alongside us. He learned what it was to be powerless on our behalf. That should catch our attention. Because whether you realize it or not, you have some kind of power over other people. And when you're in a disagreement, the tendency is to use whatever power you have to try and prove yourself right and the other person wrong. Whether that be your logic, your uh, experience, your emotions, whatever kind of authority you have. You can try to prove that other smart people are on your side, and you can try to prove that you just know better. And this just isn't the example that we need to be following. The example of Jesus shows us that power and love really don't go well together. In fact, in human beings, they rarely exist together at all. And that's scary. We have to make the conscious decision to lay down power, to humble ourselves. And that brings us to the next point, action. Because everything in this passage, what I'm realizing is, I've had the complete wrong idea of what it means to be humble. Because this passage is telling me that humility is not just a state of mind. It is not just self-hatred. It is not thinking you are lower than other people. It is not self-loathing. It's not this nagging voice reminding you that you're not good enough. The example of Jesus shows us that humility is an active choice. 
to live your life in a way that benefits others as opposed to yourself, even as is the case with Jesus at your own expense. See, the church isn't going to be changed by having the correct beliefs and making sure that everyone agrees with them. The church is going to be changed by people who lay down their power and who make the decision to practice humility in word and in action. The church is changed by looking at someone and saying, I love you more than I love winning. And the world may not notice all the ways that Christians agree with each other and are on board together, but you better believe that the world takes notice with how Christians disagree with each other. Imagine how people would react if they looked at the church filled with people with different political opinions from every nation, from every walk of life, of different languages, experiences, and backgrounds, and they saw them able to exist together, not because issues didn't get talked about, but because they were talked about in nothing but love. This is the picture that Paul has in mind for the church, and this is what he's going to paint in the rest of this passage. Keep reading with me in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and arguing so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world. It is by your holding fast to the word of life that I can boast on the day of Christ that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a libation over the sacrifice and the offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And in the same way, you also must be glad and rejoice with me. The last thing I want to bring our attention to follows in the footsteps of what we talked about last week. If you remember, we, we talked about the united self being one that is wholly focused on Jesus in front of them to the point where nothing else comes close to mattering. And with Paul's instruction to the church, we see his hope that the church will be filled with united selves. Filled with people who have this constant fixation on the hope that Jesus brings. Because unity for the sake of unity is not enough. We could be united in bigotry, in prejudice, in sexism, in misogyny, in exclusion, and we would still be missing the point. We could also be united in our agreement not to talk about anything that may start an argument and just pretend that we're all on the same page. In verse 13, Paul reminds us that God works in us to act according to his purpose, not our own. As N.T. Wright points out, bringing their thinking into line with each other wouldn't be any good if they were all thinking something that was out of line with the gospel. Some may have noticed that our graphic for United is on top of this picture of a wall. And I struggled with this for a while because I know that a wall can have kind of a negative connotation, maybe even counter to what I'm getting at. A wall can sig signal division and exclusion. 
But I still chose this as our background because I think that it is exactly what Paul has in mind with his image of the united church. Full of united selves, stacked on top of each other, working together for a common goal. If you look at this wall, there's not one brick that would consider itself more important than the others because they are all joined in fulfilling the exact same purpose. There's also not one single brick committed to any other purpose besides strengthening the structure of this wall. This is the united church. It is united selves single-mindedly focused on the work that God has for us. And if you'll notice, this wall has existed for a while. The world has learned to work around it. The world has molded to its existence because it is strong and unwavering in its purpose. This is the church that God has called us to. This is the united church. Individuals working together for a good that is greater than their own. Individuals that prioritize the work that God has called us to. The united church is filled with people who just manage to get lost in something besides themselves. We have the responsibility to, in this church, with our words and our actions, remember that we are part of something else, something other, something bigger than just us. The United Church doesn't flee from division or disagreements, but it addresses all of them in love, knowing that repairing these cracks will only strengthen the wall. This week, you will be confronted with no shortage of opportunities to get angry at a brother and sister, to argue, to speak out of malice and hatred, and to want to be right and to want to win. My hope and my prayer for you is that God will grant you the clarity and the patience to ask yourself in those moments, what does love require? May we listen to understand. And may we love others more than we love being right. And may we above all share a single-minded focus on the Father who unites us. This is how God is going to bring about unity in our church. And this is how God is going to use that church for his glory in the world. Pray with me. Father, today we are humbled by how big and awesome you are and how small and fallible we are. God, we ask today for your provision. We ask that you would make your presence known to us in a clear, palpable, powerful way so that we could begin focusing more and more on you. God, remind us of the burden of being your church, the burden of speaking in love even when it's difficult, the burden of treating others as better than ourselves when we don't want to. Remind us of this call and remind us of your son's example of this. God, I pray that this church would be a church of forgivers, a church full of people who love others so well that the world has no option but to take notice. God, give us this strength to do just that. Give us your peace and above all, remind us of your son. We ask this in his name. Amen.